I'm J.P. Tuesday. And I'm Kiki Cannon. As lifelong Disney fans, the work of countless talented Disney creatives have shaped our lives. Now, as the Disney catalog expands, we're taking a journey through film and television to discover if that spark that shaped us as children lives on in adulthood. Does your favorite Disney media still cast that same spell? Join us as we find out. We are Rewatching the Magic. Hi, Kiki. Hi, Tuesday. All right. Well, we're going to be talking about the original 1976, The Omen. And uh, uh, let's uh, let's uh, as we've said before, we are really getting into the hardcore horror for the rest of the month of October. So if you are someone who listens to this show with the little ones, you might want to skip this one. We'll see you in November. Also, this is the omen. We're going to be dealing with a lot of religious themes. So if that also doesn't sit well with you, we'll see you next time. Yeah. Um, there's there's no way to, to talk about the omen without getting into the reasons it was created and um, some of the theological aspects of it. So if you don't want to listen to that, if you think that one might offend you skip on it's it's fine we'll see you next time uh our next episode will not touch on those themes <laughs> so uh you're you're free to come back for that one so the omen the original 1976 film about the son of the devil the son of the jackal <laughs> Yeah, the the birth of the Antichrist and the lead up to the apocalypse. This this is a weird one and created for even weirder reasons. <laughs> it yeah, because they wanted to make a movie about the Bible and it kind of turned into this. <sighs> well, okay. There is there is a lot of strange backstory, and it's not going to make a lot of sense if you didn't grow up in the culture I grew up in. So, quick backstory? <laughs> All right. So, after World War II, as you may know, if you follow the histories at all, there was the move to return Jerusalem and the area around it into what is now the modern state of Israel. Okay. This had the very bizarre effect of triggering in a particular strain of American evangelical Christians a rather bizarre end times prophecy movement. That's still going on uh, that, to this that day. That is still going on to this day, if you follow the news at all. Um, Every year, they end up saying that this is going to be the end of the world. And they've been saying it basically since that happened. But it really took off kind of in the, you know, late 60s and early 70s. Um, especially in the early 70s, um, I think in 1970, actually, when a 
book was published called The Late Great Planet Earth. And this sparked like an entire thing in a certain strain of evangelical Christianity that was like, oh no, the end times is coming any five minutes now. You know, just full disclosure, I happened to grow up in this particular kind of subsection. So I speak from experience here. Okay. The person who originally came up with the idea that turned into the omen was very much influenced by this particular idea. Okay. That the formation of the state of Israel was the kind of first domino that was going to lead to the apocalypse as foretold in the book of Revelation um, in a very particular way. Okay. That's, it's kind of, I don't, I don't necessarily want to say conspiracy theory, but it is a very specific end times prophecy. Okay. It is a very specific reading of the book of Revelation. This idea was come up with by, I think, like some sort of ad exec or marketing person or whatever. It wasn't a screenwriter. And he told it to a producer and eventually they got it to a screenwriter uh, named David Seltzer and said, hey, turn this vague idea into a screenplay. And that idea became the open. His Seltzer's version was kind of a weird permutation of all of these ideas that were going on in the 70s zeitgeist at the time, uh, which created a lot of these religious-based supernatural horror films. So he and the producer Richard Donner, who you may know because uh, he directed the Superman movie with Christopher Reeve, this was, uh, of course, before he did Superman, but um, they got together and they did this film. So that's kind of where it all came from. Um, so even though you see in the film that it, it all looks very Catholic and, you know, there's the, the weird creepy Latin chanting and they go to priests and all this kind of stuff, and they're in Anglican churches and stuff because they're in England, and it's all kind of the sort of Catholic or high Protestant feel. It's actually a weirdly American evangelical film at its core, although it was although the script was eventually written by a Jewish man, so. <laughs> It's a very strangely put together film that comes out of the original idea 
from this germ of an idea in the early 70s of, oh, this is the first domino in what will eventually lead to the uh, Book of Revelation coming true. It is fascinating that there was a fight between the screenwriter and the director in that the director, uh, Richard Donner, wanted to have the film be very ambiguous in the way it was told. He wanted all of the deaths in the film to be filmed very could it be an accident and could Thorne uh, could uh, Robert Thorne be perhaps a victim of delusion or religious fervor and that Damien was perhaps just a normal child but Seltzer wanted it to be completely unambiguous. No, Damien is actually the Antichrist. And he was, you know, all of the deaths were actually caused by some sort of demonic or satanic influence. And, you know, th this is really happening, you know. Um, and so, of course we know which one we, we eventually ended up with. But I think it was kind of interesting that the two of them had that sort of massive creative difference uh, when they initially started working on the film. Uh, and it would have been interesting to see Donner's version, I think. I think so. Having that benefit of the doubt that all of these deaths just happened to be coincidence and the thing is you could sort of recut the film almost i mean it, it would take very little to rework the film into donner's thing you know i mean if you were to do another remake i mean i know they did a remake in uh the 2000s the early 2000s six six oh six yeah um but if you if you tried to do something like that again, it wouldn't take much to reframe it as is it someone who is just looking at a series of coincidences and seeing, you know. I mean, we see that every day, especially uh, recently with celebrity deaths, you know. Oh, these things happens in threes, and it's a sign, and it's just coincidence that these famous people just happen to die on the same day. Yeah, I mean, and it's there are there are a lot of things that are just, you know, it's the you know, correlation does not equal causation, you know, effect there, but it. It would be very easy, I think, to rework the script into just kind of, you know, these things kind of happened. And are we seeing what's really there or are we seeing something that's just in this one 
delusional grieving man's head uh would be would be kind of fascinating this film is great because of not only the creatives behind it because you know seltzer had already worked on willy wonka and the chocolate factory even though he was uncredited he is it's now known that he reworked large portions of Roald Dahl's script for that. And Richard Donner is a legend. Uh, So behind the scenes, you have these greats, but also on camera, this is one of the best casts assembled, not just for a horror film, but just on screen. This is such a great cast. Because of course, in the in the lead as Robert Thorne, you get Gregory Peck. Mm-hmm. So how you gonna <laughs> how you gonna argue with that? I mean, just Atticus Finch alone, you don't you don't even need to go further than that. <laughs> but of course, he did Moby Dick and uh, Cape Fear, of course. Um, and gentlemen's agreement. I mean, it's just good grief. The man's career could we could be here for quite some time, just on and on and on. Um, I I grew up just loving uh, Roman Holiday when I was a kid, uh, specifically. Then playing his wife, uh, Kathy Thorne. You get Lee Remick, you got her in, in Days of Wine and Roses and Facing the Crowd. But uh, honestly, this is kind of always what I what I remember her for. <laughs> I mean, not to not to discount her, but I just think her performance in this is just so amazing. It just always sticks with me. The, the way she starts out as just the loving mother and then just slowly turns throughout the film. It's, it's such a moving performance to me. And I always think she's kind of overlooked when people talk about this movie. Then I, I think one of the, the biggest standouts for me has to be David Warner uh, as the, the photographer Jennings. Because whenever you put David Warner in a movie, I'm going to show up for that movie. <laughs> We've talked about him before because he was in Tron. Yeah, and I mean, we talked about my my undying love of, of David Warner when we talked about him in Tron. Um, I have I have watched some seriously bizarre things just because it was like, and David Warner's in this. <laughs> um, he is and will will always remain uh a a beloved uh m- mainstay in the lives of mystery science theater fans i think um but also in uh in uh terry pratchett uh fans cuz he he was in the uh the wonderful hogfather adaptation 
that they did. I I just loved seeing him in anything. And of course he just recently passed as well this this year, so that just gutted me. Uh but I've I always loved his performance in this. This is uh not the first thing I saw him in, but it was one of the earlier performances I saw him in. And then you get uh Billy Whitelaw is her in her wonderful turn as the evil nanny that comes in to guide Damien through throughout this. And of course, you know, she she popped up in so many things over the years, such a great uh English actress. Uh but I think it's so interesting that her final film role ended up being in Hot Fuzz. Hmm. So if you're a, a Simon Pegg fan, then uh, there you go. And we, of course, because there were so many great uh, English actors in this film, we we get a doctor, specifically the second doctor, uh, Patrick Troughton, uh, in here as Father Brennan, who uh, comes in to first warn us of the looming danger, uh, which I had kind of forgotten he was in this, to be honest. Yeah, me too. I was like, wait, I'm that's the doctor. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, it's never a bad day when you get surprise doctor, you know? Yeah. I think this is the first time I ever saw him in anything that wasn't Doctor Who. Well, yeah, I mean, me too. Um, but it was uh, kind of an interesting surprise because he's—it's such a different role. I—I uh, th- I think it's an interesting transformation because you don't even really recognize him. And then, of course, speaking of great British actors. <laughs> show up uh even though he wasn't uh he wasn't himself uh british originally uh he was australian but he shows up in so many british productions that you just kind of forget that is uh leo mckern who uh shows up in this uncredited actually uh but he is the guy that they meet towards the end that finally gives them the the knives the exorcist yeah uh but yeah leo mckern you may remember if you watch a lot of uh british television as i do as uh probably most famous as rumpole in rumpole of the bailey uh but if you watch weird ass british television like I do, <laughs> then you're going to remember him as number two in The Prisoner. Uh, so there's your uh, weird little acid trip for today. <laughs> have, have fun uh, remembering The Prisoner there for, for a minute. And uh, of course, if you're if you're into uh, weird fantasy films, he was also in Lady Hawk. It's, uh, there, there are more scattered out, you know, through, throughout the the film that we could get into, but those are kind of the ones I, I wanted to ha- highlight. As just, you may have forgotten some of these people were were in there, but uh, they were kind of the like 
oh my god, I forgot they were in this, you know, that I realized as I kind of went. Like, I had forgotten that was Leo McKern, um, because it's been a while since I had sat down and watched this. Um, and I had forgotten it was Petra Trouton, uh, honestly. But, yeah. Honestly, it, I, it's been so long since I've seen the original Omen that all the scenes I remember are actually from Omen 2. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I cannot remember how long it's been since I've seen Omen 2, honestly. I mean, I've, I've seen, like, the entire series, but... It's just, like, the, the you know, cut spoiler for the, for the next movie, that scene where Damien kills his, his cousin Mark. That's the one thing that's in my mind every time I think of the Omen. Well, honestly, all this, all the scenes that I remember are from the the first film, and the reason I I remember them so clearly is that pretty much all of them are parodied in Good Omens, and I've seen Good Omens recently. <laughs> um, if you haven't seen Good Omens, uh, go watch that season two coming and- uh, next year. And, you know, every, like, The Simpsons, South Park, Family Guy, every animated sitcom has parodied The Omen at least once. Yeah. But as far as parodies of The Omen goes, uh, Good Omens does it better than anybody else. Uh, Fun fact, the person that introduced me to Good Omens as a novel uh, way back when, uh, almost 20 years ago now, um, did not realize it was a parody book and had never seen The Omen. <laughs> and so as I was reading through it with them and uh, was laughing hysterically at all the jokes and parody, uh, they were like, why are you laughing so hard at this? And I was like, because, you know, it's the scene in The Omen. And they were like, this is a parody? <laughs> so we sat down and watched The Omen. <laughs> And that was fun. They were like, oh, this book makes a lot more sense now. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about the omen as in the prophecy itself. The whole thing that this entire movie is based around. And it starts with what you said earlier. The Jews getting their land back. Israel. That starts the 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 way to the apocalypse. How the son of Satan will be born of a jackal, and he will. Well, ride. that that's not even in the the thing. I mean, uh, yeah. let let's just go through the poem. When the Jews return to Zion and a comet rips the sky and the Holy Roman Empire rises, then you and I must die. From the eternal sea he rises, creating armies on either shore, turning man against his brother, till man exists no more. Take that as you will. I mean, there's like, and they conclude that the eternal sea is politics. The thing is, is that the stuff that they come to the conclusion, they're not pulling that out of nowhere. They are pulling that from bits that were already in the in the evangelical framework that I already talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so this idea of the eternal sea meaning politics the either shore they didn't really get into this in the movie but either shore uh a lot of people in that culture think either shore is meaning either side of the atlantic so one side being Europe, one side being America. So the fact that he is the son of the American diplomat who is stationed in England. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, yeah, there's there's a lot of it. And honestly, if you've ever seen the kind of the, the left behind movies or read those books, a lot of this stuff comes up again. And people might think like, oh, they're ripping off the... Um, it's not. It's coming from the same theological tradition. Um, so they're pulling from the same place. Uh, the idea of the Holy Roman Empire being the um, the marketplace. They talk in the movie about the uh, an economic treaty that had just been signed um, around that that period in history. Uh, that is also uh, from the speculation. A lot of it comes from that late Great Planet Earth book, which, by the way, they made into a movie and it was uh, narrated by Orson Welles. Hmm. Yeah, it it's weird. You you can find bits of it on like YouTube and stuff like that. Yeah, it's it's strange. Um, a lot of this end times prophecy stuff is is strange, but the uh, yeah, so they're they're not pulling this out of nowhere, and they they weren't just while that poem that that I I just read is made up for the movie. The things that they're talking about were taken from other other sources, mm. um, and how people were reading uh, and. Uh, interpreting uh certain biblical prophecy at the time uh and still are um that's not a fabrication of the screenwriter but the the idea of the the birth from a jackal is not entirely whole cloth from from this movie but it's kind of more specific to this movie um comes from a few different sources but th this movie is one of the major ones so satan banged a jackal and out came damien yeah kind of um the the idea that it's a human body but not entirely human so you're okay killing it <laughs> is, is i mean the, the kind the, of the thing yeah the jackal stuff does come up in later films when it's when it shows that his dna isn't exactly all human but that's the sequels we're kind of concentrating on the on the original yeah. film here. The interesting thing is, though, is that th the thing I got watching this movie in a modern context is this is so much easier in the seventies. I forget how they worked this in a in the two thousand six film. But watching this in the 70s, you're 
the bit about the baby and how they switched the baby makes so much more sense in the 70s. Like in 1976, for you to be like, okay, they were in Rome and she gives birth to a baby and it's not exactly stillborn, but basically, you know, his his wife gives birth to a baby, it takes a breath and then dies, basically. Well, that's the story that they're told. Well, th- that's the story they're told, okay? And they they don't tell the mother. Because it would be too devastating. Because it would be too devastating. So they call the father instead and have him make all the decisions. Once again, it's the 70s, so you can buy it. And uh, they say, look, there has been a miracle. Another child was born at exactly the same time, except the mother died. And the child has no family. It looks very similar to you and your wife. We can just pretend it's your baby. No one will ever know the difference. Because, you know, there's no DNA tests. There's no records keeping. There's no security cameras. There's no... You know, like, yeah. Internet isn't really a thing. Yeah, there's, there's no way to track this because it's the 70s. And they actually cover their butts later in the film by saying that their record vault was torched. Yeah. We we know that this is probably Patrick Troughton's doing. Because Patrick Troughton has the same mark. I mean, it's it's never spelled out super explicitly in the movie. It's also we, it's also implied that uh the, the, the priest that we see at the beginning, Father Spellito? Uh, Spellito, yeah. Spellito. May have had a, a, a hand in this, because we see it later. Well, we know, that, we know that he had a hand in the death, whether or not he had a hand in the fire. That, that was specifically what I was meaning. It, it seems like Patrick Troughton probably was one of the ones who set the fire. So Father Brennan probably set the fire. Father Spellito probably was meant to die in the fire and just didn't. It, they were probably trying to cover their tracks by killing anyone who was there and uh, destroying the records. Uh, but the and the father they- who actually you know did the murder and knew where it was buried uh, survived accidentally and repented before his death. Uh, and the the priest who set the fire repented before his death so you know satan's plan didn't work super well yeah father brennan really i mean he's like when we finally see his his apartment the all the walls covered in 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 pages of the bible every corner of the walls covered in a crucifix his his apartment is right across the street from the church kind of making sure that 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 god is always with him after this, after serving Satan. Yeah, we never see if Father Spoleto has the mark, but we know Father Brennan does. So we don't, we don't know if Father Spoleto is the other, the third in the unholy trinity, but we assume he is. But 
you know, it it seems very interesting that because it's the the 70s, the fact that they could just be like, yes, white man, we will just give you this random child and just nudge, nudge, wink, wink this this quote unquote adoption. And you just kind of buy it like it seems shady, but you're like, yeah, that probably happened. I mean, I mean, it's a Catholic run hospital. There's been weirder things, you know? I mean, yeah. You know, I mean, all right. Sure, I mean, they, they, gave, also the- they gave a rich family a baby under the table. Sure. I buy yeah, it. Yeah, I, I, I had a less than favorable way of saying it than you did, but basically saying the same thing I was thinking. Um, But, but the thing is, is that they don't tell them the mother because they'd be like, oh, she'd reject it as, like, not her baby, so we'll just tell her it's her baby, you know? I mean, uh, Robert Thorne even says, you know, well, you could, when uh, when uh, Father Spoleto, Martin Benson's character, said, well, even though you don't have a child, you could always adopt one. And Robert Thorne just says, Gregory Peck, you know, says, no, no, she would never accept an adopted child. She wanted one of her own. Which plays into the whole, oh, we have another child that their mother died and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and it, it's it's such a, a weird thing of, like, so so many people have this idea of, like, women being unable to, you know, to accept adopted children in that situation. Which of course is ridiculous. So it's it's such a bizarre kind of moment, but they don't tell the mother, and they're just like, "Yeah, here, here's a baby. It's yours. Don't ask questions. Shush, baby. You know." And they're like, "Okay," and they name him Damien, which is why I have only ever met one person. Born in the mid seventies, early eighties, named Damien. As if I, I went to a school with a kid named Damien. Yeah, and even even him, when I when I met him, he was like, "My name's Damien." I was like, "Oh, you are the only Damien I know." And he's like, "Yeah, I am also the only Damien I know." My parents were weird. I get it. <laughs> like, <laughs> like immediately, he was like, "I know what you're thinking," and. Yes, I am the only Damien I know my age. <laughs> um, it, it's finally it's finally coming back that you're you're seeing boys named Damien as the the movie has kind of faded and that connotation has has faded. But uh, that name went out of favor for quite a while. <laughs> Nobody wanted to name their son Damien for a while. I mean, when that name is kind of tied to the devil through one of the most popular movies of the era. Yeah, I mean, this movie was so popular, it just absolutely killed that name. Like, you had to be like, there there, there were boys named Damien, but it had to be like, yeah, I get it, but my father, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, like, we are all named Damien. Like, okay, it's it's a family tradition. No movie was going to break that, you know? Like, that's how you ended up with the name Damien, I think, uh, 
if you if you are a man named Damien born during that period of time. Then we get the the time skip, so now it's like an adorable, you know, five, six-year-old. And they're in England now. Papa Thorne is the ambassador to England, because that's a better job. I mean, Thorne is working his way up the chain. And they they right away say that he's got his eyes set on the presidency. That's that's what they're planning. He he wants to be president. And this is just a stepstone. I mean, he can just skip right to just running for president work before. Well, that's true, but that is not the usual at least it was not the usual at, the at this point in history. Yes. At I this understand. point in history. Trying to make a joke. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's the, that's, that's Thorne's plan. He wants, you know, ascend the, the, the political ladder. And this becomes the running theme of the entire Omen saga. Trying to make sure Damien is in a place where political power will be within his grasp and also money. Um, the Thorns are said to be very wealthy. And we get our first glance of the other thing the Omen kind of helped uh, turn into a, a bit of a pariah. Not only the name Damien, but also the Rottweiler as a breed. Yeah, the throughout this movie, the Rottweiler seems to be... The hound of Satan, as it were, for this movie. Because there's a there's a Rottweiler that comes to Damien and is very kind to it. We see two more Rottweilers that quote protect Damien after the truth is revealed. And there are uh, there is a, the group of Rottweilers that is at the cemetery later in the film. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, this this does seem to be the the hellhound of of choice for Satan. I mean, not not any more aggressive than any other dog, you know. Um, but they film very well, and they they look amazing on camera. Uh, so I, I don't particularly know why they were chosen, other than the fact that they probably just look very menacing Me on camera. Yeah, mere, Damien's mere presence seems to just change the world around him. Like, they go to a wildlife preserve, and the animals start attacking. And yeah, animals know... Animals other than the hellhound, uh, which are always very docile around Damien. Uh, animals know that Damien is unnatural. So whenever he's near an animal other than the hellhounds... They they absolutely lose their shit. Uh, it is absolutely just hor horrific. Um, I love the scene at the zoo because it starts so very mild of just him trying to feed the giraffes and then the giraffes running away. And it just seems like, huh, that's weird. Then when the monkeys get involved. And then, yeah, the the bonobos just absolutely just screeching and howling. And at first they try to run away, but they can't get far enough away. So they start attacking the car to get the car to move on. And Damien 
curling into his mother's lap and crying and screaming and the mom you know almost running over the monkeys to get out of there you know and then we get the the other strange bits like of course the first one being the death of the the first nanny you know that sweet little nanny look at me damien this is for you it's all for you damien it's all for you and that's that's the thing is that it is when you first watch the film your first viewing of the film that comes out of absolute nowhere because there is nothing to lead up to that there's there's nothing around her there's nothing she just she gets one strange look as the dog appears and the mother takes Damien from her and she gets this one kind of like orchestral sting and she gets a faraway look on her face and then wanders off into the house and then the next thing you hear is just like look at me Damien I'm up here look at Nanny and then everybody turns and she just jumps and there's no lead up to that there is absolutely no foreshadowing you don't even get one of the weird pictures you know from from Made David in, Warner yeah like you do with uh Patrick Troughton mm-hmm. so that moment the first time you see the film i remember the first time i watched the film just being absolutely smacked upside the head by that that scene because i was not expecting that it came so out of nowhere speaking of patrick trotton he not long after this he meets up with uh gregory peck and telling him hey you know the the child is unnatural this that this that and the other take communion devote your life to christ and he st- they this leads up to uh the wedding that they're going to because they're going to a wedding this uh while he's in england and they want to bring damien along i assume this is part of the whole like let's let's make you know let's let's, let's try to make the even if it's even 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 if this this priest is full of bs doesn't hurt to take child to church just in case and Damien just goes apeshit, crazy, clawing at his mother, screaming, hollering the, the closer they get to the church. Yeah, the the amount of injury he does to his mother in that moment as they're approaching the church and he sees like the, the little angel statue on top and everything. And he realizes, like, they're going to take him inside the church. and You know, they're approaching holy ground or, or whatever. When the, the car door opens and he just freaks out and starts clawing at her face and climbing on top of her and screaming, help me, help me, help me, you know. Um, and that's where the relationship between Damien and Kathy change. Because up to this point, it's always been happy mother, happy child. 
And yeah, it's it's it also gets exasperated further when we find out that she is pregnant with a second child. That everything Damien does straights up annoys her that she no longer wants to be around Damien. I don't know if this is just pregnancy general because I've been around pregnant women who generally do get annoyed at various sounds and fine. Or is it some sort of instinct that maybe this is not her real child? Or is Damien being this annoying on purpose because, as it's explained in the film, he doesn't want to sec a sibling? By the time that happens, I mean, you know, we're, we're skipping around a little bit here. So in the timeline of the film, by the time she starts having those feelings toward Damien. She has witnessed so many incidents where Damien has caused bizarre occurrences. She has watched the nanny kind of lose her mind and commit suicide while screaming it's this is all for you Damien I'm doing this all for you okay then she has witnessed all of the animals go crazy she has been attacked by her own child because he did not want to go into a church even before she finds out she's pregnant there is that scene after she is attacked when she is treating her wounds and she talks about having all these weird occurrences around Damien and the latest one being the attack at the church. They talk about how strange it is that Damien has never been sick in his entire life up to that point. He's made it to five years old. He's never had a cold. He's never had the chicken pox. He's never had measles. He's never had mumps, which in the 70s, I mean, all of these are, you know, we don't we don't have the vaccines for these yet. They're they're all normal childhood illnesses. And he's made it to five years old and he's never had any of the common childhood illnesses. And you see that he's around other children a lot. You know, they have, like, these big birthday parties for him, and he, like, you know. So, it's not like he's a sheltered child. Why has he not had the, you know, and they're just now realizing, like, oh, yeah, there's a lot of weirdness about our child. And she talks about wanting to go see a psychiatrist. And then she gets into bed next to her husband and she makes one of the most interesting statements in the movie, which is there can't be anything wrong with our child. We're beautiful people. Which is such a bizarre and shallow and yet understandable statement for a woman in her position a rich white woman yeah i mean but she is she is a a rich white woman of just the the 
utmost privilege. Married to a politician. Yeah, I mean, she she is married to a very powerful man. They know the president and first lady. Because they've already mentioned that in the movie, and we later see that that's, you know, t- true because there's the, the he, president the funeral, and first yeah. lady who are at the funeral taking care of their child, you know. You can tell that's in her thinking. We are rich, able-bodied, good-looking, you know, we're we're the perfect couple. We should have a perfect child. Why is this not turning out correctly and so when she ends up pregnant again she wants to have an abortion because she is thinking something must be wrong with me because i had a i'm just going to say the term defective child the first time so something must be wrong with me and or my husband that we cannot produce perfect children. And this is right after uh, Patrick Trouton says, hey, you got to make sure your kid doesn't die because Damien is going to make sure it's going to happen. Yeah. And so it is you can tell that she is being manipulated on some psychological level. You know, could, could it be by, Damien's influence? I mean, Damien. I mean, it is. It is. But the thing is, is that he is already using what's there, of course. To, I say he, but you know, Satan, of course, is is using what's already within Kathy, to um, her her own self doubts against her. Yeah. And it's probably why Robert says at the beginning the thing about she was so insistent on having a child of her own rather than adoption. But when Robert says that he won't support the abortion, you know, because he knows what's going on. I I don't think it's necessarily that he's against her you know right to choose necessarily i don't know we don't know enough about him to make that character judgment i don't think um but he already knows that this is a plot by satan to make sure that he and his wife never have a child of their own then we get the the point where damien assisted by his evil satanic nanny goes on his little tricycle ride and makes sure that Kathy falls over the railing and has her injury and ends up having the miscarriage. And that to me is such a devastating scene because she doesn't just fall over the railing. She falls and she catches herself. And Damien is just there watching. Yeah, as she's screaming, Damien, Damien, you know, which, of course, even if Damien is not the reason for her fall, he's a five-year-old kid. It's not like he could help pull her back up anyway. So even if it was, you know, the kid is just watching his mother, 
it wasn't like the kid was going to really be of any help anyway, other than maybe just screaming and crying. But it's still such a horrifying scene of watching her, you know, grabbing on to the, the banister there and, and desperately trying to hang on. The way it's shot is just, to me, kind of comical, her fall. See, I never got comedy from that. I always I always no, thought always, it was just so devastating. I don't know. Not necessarily her, you know, begging to be, but it's just from the moment she loses her grip and the angle it's shot at and the way it's acted and uh, wiring or whatever at the time, it just it looks so fake, even by 70s Hollywood standards. Yeah, I think they were trying to give you the, you know, devastating slow motion in the how she falls because of, you know, her turning around and landing on her stomach so that you know that all the impact went went to to the the fetus, you know. Yeah. but yeah, I think because of the limitations of the technology, maybe that it it might and the insistence on seeing the actor's face. Yeah, because like in a different scenario and a different director would have probably had a stunt person falling, but it's clear that that Donner wanted to see uh, Lee Remick's face as she fell. Yeah, um, it, I, I can I can see where you're coming from then in that. In that instance, and I, I can, I can see your your point on that. So I, I, I will agree that that the the limits of the technology and the way it was filmed, yeah, okay. To to me though, I, I think I, I've always been caught up in what happened just prior to that moment, so it it never really hit that way to me. But if it did to you, I, I get it. I get it now that you've explained. Um, but. Once Robert has realized exactly what's going on, and of course, the other thing that happens at that same moment is that we lose Father Brennan. We get that amazing death scene with Patrick Troughton as the storm comes up out of nowhere. And he just tries to run to the church, but the church is locked. He's banging on the door. Lightning strikes the lightning rod, which just impales him. It's one of the greatest death scenes in horror. I mean, this this one has a couple of really good ones, but I've I've always loved that with that image. That final like, image. And it was so dramatic and I'm just thinking move doctor, move. It's yeah. not moving, it's not falling that fast that you couldn't move 5 feet. <laughs> Well, the thing is, is that it's it's dramatic enough in the way that the it feels so inevitable that the storm just comes up so quickly. And you ever see those those lightning pictures? Where it's multiple lightning strikes at the same time and it's always like screw those three things in particular or whatever, you know, yeah. like it, it, it always feels like that. 
Because, of course, that is what's happening. It's like Satan just being like, screw this one guy. But with a storm. Hmm. And all because the storm comes up, the lightning strikes like two or three times until it kills Patrick Troughton. And then the storm immediately dies. And then, of course, the paper the next day is like, freak storm kills priest and absolutely no one else, you know? (laughs) It's like, um, so it is like very much, it has that feeling of inevitability. So even though you're kind of like, yeah, just move to the side, you still get that feeling of like, if it hadn't have been that thing, he would have moved to the side and like the tree next to him would have just fallen over on him, you know? Hmm. So I kind of like that scene as well, because it just feels like no matter what he did, it was going to be something mm. that that storm would have followed him all over London until it got him. But also we find out that he was dying of cancer anyway. So, yeah, I, I think it was like Satan was like, you, you're telling too much, so I'm going to kill you now. But also he was probably going to die in another week or so. I, it's it's I mean, the, the, the fact that he was dying from cancer anyway could have aided into his decision to repent. Well, yeah, I mean, he he was very much on a timetable and he kept saying, I want to be right with God before I die and you know I want God to forgive me before I go and things then like that the last thing he says uh, to Robert is that I'll see you in hell when I get there because yeah. he already knows he's damned like no matter how much he's tried to to warn Robert Thorne and how much he's tried to repent for his for his actions in in this entire situation with Damien there, there's no going back he's he can Devoted soul to God as much as he wants. He's, his soul is damned either way. Which is, theologically speaking, not a terribly Christian idea in most Christian sects, you know? That there's... I mean, there's the, the, the depending on which depending on, on how your your faith is going, that all he had to do was repent and get rebaptized and communion and say, you know, I, I repent my sins and then you're good to go. But I don't know. I feel like the fact that Father Brendan knew that he had an, a hand in the coming of the Antichrist, that, that that's, a, that's a sin too far almost. Yeah, I mean, maybe, but I don't know. I mean, it's... It seems seems a little a little weird to me. A little uh, more pessimistic than the average Christian, you would say. Yeah, I mean it 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 does it does seem like a a priest would have a little more faith in the uh redeeming power of uh prayer. Christ's Christ's forgiveness than than that. Um but, maybe it's a situation where he couldn't forgive himself. I mean, that might be, you know, he might have felt like maybe I'm not sincere enough in my confession or whatever. But yeah. uh, it it is kind of interesting it, to me that he has so so little faith in the the redemption. 
the thing is, though, is that we finally get to the first part of the movie is so kind of slow burn in the oncoming evil of Damien. And then once Father Brennan dies, it really picks up speed. Because this is a two hour movie. So once we hit, hit that halfway point, it's full it's full steam ahead. Yeah. Um, once once Kathy is in the hospital, you know, she she doesn't die from her fall. It's it's not that. You but know, she, she, but she's in a full body cast at this point. Well, her arm is in traction. She can still walk, but her her arm is in traction and she has suffered a horrible miscarriage, unfortunately. Um, so she is on bed rest and her arm is in traction. She's in the hospital and then Father Brennan has been killed. And that's when we get David Warner back in the movie. He's kind of disappeared for a while. Yeah, he's, and been, he's been in the background for the entire movie up to this point. Yeah, Every, just kind of taking pictures. And, he's just a photographer. He's only, yeah. And considering uh, Thorne is a high-ranking diplomat, of course, the, the, the a photographer was always going to be there at every big function that he's at just for the, for the, for the news and, and the spectacle of it. But we yeah, see- there's yeah. David Warner is not the only photographer that hangs around. There's there's always several photographers that are just kind of there. And David Warner is one of them. So then- it's it's really interesting the way they introduce him into the movie. Just as as one of the reporters that is there. And then he slowly becomes more and more important to the plot, which I like. As we see in his his photographs, that he sees how all of these people are going to die. Is it ever explained how? No. It just is. But, you know, uh, this is one of those that, unlike last week's film, I've never really wanted or needed an explanation for this. I don't know about you, but this is one of those that, like, yeah, I kind of... When I was younger, I was like, "Okay, but why?" Eh, I don't, I don't care. <laughs> it's just one of those things because he so he shows in the picture of the nanny, and he he even says, "I, I thought it was a, a defect in the film, but no, it's just it's right there." Because she's, you see the noose around the uh, the nanny after he takes the picture. You see the the impaled spear on on the priest. He even sees his own death. Yeah. But you know what? I think this is just... I I am fine chalking this up to divine intervention. Mm. I mean, if Satan can interfere, why can't the divine? Fair enough. You know? I, I mean, if this if the apocalypse is the final battle, why can't this be some kind of, you know, heavenly intervention? If Satan can cheat, so can God, huh? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, honestly, that that's the plot of Good Omens. You know, <laughs> like, seriously, go watch Good Omens. Um, I want a season three. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the thing is, though, is that when David Warner shows back up, he is like, hey, I... 
I want to talk to you about the death of the priest because I have found some interesting stuff. And Thorne is already upset. He has just found out about his wife and the priest kind of backed back. And then this photographer that he has met before in passing calls and it's like, I have information. So he's like, you know what? Screw it. Fine. What's your information? And the photographer is like, yeah, I've been taking magic pictures of people who are going to (laughs) die. And he's like, you know what? That might as well happen. Sure. (laughs) The, the, The hand wavy explanation of how they get into Father Brennan's apartment. Saying, well, they the the cops thought he was insane, so they just let me do whatever I want in this in this crime scene. But also, it's kind of like this is another one of those where I'm like, yeah, but it was the '70s. Yeah. So I can kind of buy it. Like, <laughs> it's another one of those things I didn't question too much. It's like, well, David Warner's a white man, and he just kind of wandered in and was like. Hello, I'm a white man. It's the 70s. Let me let me in. It's like I don't know. <laughs> the the thing is though is that he I mean he is legitimately a reporter. So I can kind of see why they would let him into a crime scene. He probably does have a rapport with some cops and with the coroner. So yeah, I I didn't question that too much. Um, but yeah, he's, he's been able to go and see some of the, um, or at least take photos of the, the corpse and talk to the coroner. Um, and that's how they discovered that Father Brennan had the, the 666 mark. It was so interesting to me in the movie that nobody knew what the 666 meant until the end of the movie. Like, they're just all kind of like, huh, 666, I wonder what that meant. And I guess it's just because of how I grew up. I was like, even as even when I saw this movie as a kid, I was like, yeah, duh. And they, 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 they explain it in the film as the sign of the unholy trinity. I mean, this movie was the first time I heard that. I mean, just personally, mm-hmm. I I don't I don't think I I had heard that idea outside of this movie. Um, I'm not saying that that that's where they got it from, you know, that they just made it up. They probably mm-hmm. got it from somewhere, but I don't uh, I don't remember hearing it prior to hearing this hearing it in this movie yeah uh yeah the, the unholy trinity satan the antichrist and the false prophet yeah so would you assume that father brennan would be the false prophet either either him or you know maybe father spoleto hmm. but we we don't know if father spoleto has the you the know mark or not yeah but yeah i mean uh, you know I I grew up being taught all that. I mean, you know, immediately I I would have been like number of the beast, mm-hmm. you know. And um, they they really hammer this one home. He was as as uh, Damien was born on June sixth at six a.m. 
Yeah. Um, and of course, like you said, when they when they released the the remake, the remake, they they did it on six six oh six, so that that it would be a thing. But of course, there there is all of all sorts of numerology and and stuff uh, related to to this. Uh, which I, I won't even get into, but of course, this is of course um, a, a massive uh, part of my childhood. <laughs> um, so the the way that they kind of you know put it together and the you know d- the birthmark and and stuff is kind of more specific to this movie it wasn't necessarily uh something i was i was used to growing up um but the idea that you know it's skipping ahead of course when they're told that uh if damien is actually the antichrist he will have a birthmark as well and uh if you know when robert says you know i've i've bathed him since he was born and i know every inch of his body and they said well if it's if you haven't seen it on his body it'll be under his hair and everything and i want which- th- that uh, that when i now i'm familiar with that part of the film but it always it always questions me was this child not born bald well go back and watch the movie because the child that they hand her does have a shockingly full head of hair and has already been bathed and have they never given this child a haircut well but think about it most babies when they have their first haircut are like one two years old because they they won't sit still mm-hmm. so you when you have a child you'll let the hair grow out until they're like a toddler and then you'll get it cut and damien has always had as we see long hair so he's got those long curls and so yeah they're they're not going to and they're not going to cut it down near the scalp so unless you have a kid that has like lice and stuff or something like a bad case of cradle cap or whatever um my my grandparents were um barbers so (laughs) i'm not just kind of talking out of nowhere um a lot of people do not tend to cut their child's hair so if you have a child that is born with a lot of hair you don't really tend to look at your child's scalp like a lot unless they get like lice or some sort of dermatological condition so honestly that's another thing where i'm like okay yeah i can i can kind of see it and if the child's being taken care of by nannies all the time they're they're not really the one bathing the child that 
you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, they're not even dressing the child to go to church, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, they're not really there, like, brushing the kid's hair all the time. I mean, you know, it's like, give the kid to the nanny, and the nanny dresses the kid, and then, the, you know? So, I was like, I mean, they're rich. They got other people to raise their kids for them. You know? <laughs> and you can totally tell that this is a pre-9-11 movie because Robert Thorne is just carrying an entire set of knives in his lap, <laughs> unchecked. Well, but he's also on a private jet. But still. <laughs> he, is, he is a diplomat on a private jet. And I'm going to tell you, even post 9-11, a diplomat on a private jet or just a rich person on a private jet, that's that's going to be a different thing. Mm. Um, yeah, that's that's a whole different section of the TSA right there, let me tell you. <laughs> um, <laughs> At best, that's like, can we just stow that for you for a little bit while you fly your private jet to wherever you're going to fly your private jet? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> different rules, my friend. Different rules. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but but I think that's mostly that's mostly because a uh, high-ranking government official. More than anything else, and also that is a government plane, which is why they're jetting around the world so quickly as well. How he was able to get from Great Britain to Rome so quickly? Well, I mean, that's a very short flight, let me tell you, but um, that's, and honestly, these days uh, with the the tunnel, uh, that's not a very very long uh train ride either yeah no that's that's not that's not terribly you forget how tiny europe is compared to us but the um but the thing about i mean they're you know they they travel over to the middle east and stuff and they're not really terribly having to wait for commercial flights either but when they do that that external shot of the plane he's flying in yeah, that is that is very definitely a private chartered government, you know, thing. The thing is though is that as they're going around and they're finding out more and more um as they're finding out about the strange fire that destroyed all the records and they go to the monastery and they talk to Spoleto and he leads them to this very old cemetery. cemetery yeah, yeah, the abandoned cemetery. And Robert is like, why are they putting them in here? It's like, well, duh, my dude. It's because nobody is going to be digging in this place. Nobody is going to come look in this place. Nobody, you know? It's like, this has been abandoned for so long, nobody's going to look into two new graves or why there is a jackal buried here. Weirdly, though, why did they even bury the jackal? Uh, that's the, that, yeah, that is a weird one. 
I mean, I know that plot-wise, it's so he can find the jackal and realize, like, that must have been Damien's mother, you know. But just from a logistics standpoint, if you're the servant of Satan, and it's like, oh, we have to hide the evidence of the birth of the Antichrist— like, you might have enough humanity left in you to be like, okay, we're going to bury the corpse of the baby we murdered. Like, as a couple of priests turned bad, you might be like, oh, we're we're at least going to give this murdered baby last rites and put it in a grave on hallowed ground. I can see you doing that. I can see you having enough humanity left to do that. But why are you burying the jackal that is really probably nothing more than an incubator for the Antichrist? Like, was Satan like, now you better give that jackal a good burial. It was my favorite jackal. Like, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Like, what is the point of that? (laughs) I don't know. It's like... Did they want to keep up the charade of Damien's birth mother being a person and no one's going to check? I I don't know. But the thing is, is that they destroyed all the records of Damien even being born. And, And nobody would have even known about that cemetery had the one priest not finally given in to, you know? And uh, while we're while we're on the subject of the cemetery scene, uh, points to David Warner, who, while uh, Gregory Peck is dumb enough to, uh, as they're escaping from the Rottweilers, he goes over the fence and gets impaled on the metal spiky bits. David Warner runs around to the part where the metal spiky bits have been sawed off for some reason <laughs> and he's like haha not falling for that <laughs> and just you know jumps over the bits without the spiky bits <laughs> and goes around to help Gregory Peck get his arm out from the being impaled <laughs> I just like that I just like that there's a part of the fence that doesn't have the you know death impaled spiky bits on it and Gregory Peck is like, no, 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 I'll go for the impale my arm side of the fence. And David Warner's like, nope. <laughs> Gonna go for the part that will not impale my arm, thank you. Because David Warner is smart. <laughs> I, I just I just like that bit. Because also, I don't know why that bit's there, other than to just give David Warner an easier exit. Like every other part of the fence is like insta death, except for like this one David Warner size hole where he can jump over. I mean, so, I don't know why that bits there. Um, it's 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 I don't know. I mean, there's a that's a whole different thing right there of people going into gr- graveyards. So uh, yeah, you're my you're you're uh, into your own theory there. Them, them finding all of that stuff and putting it together, because, of course, if you'd been listening to 
Patrick Troughton rant at the in his, the scene where he's first introduced. He's like, the mother was a jacka. And then, you know, he gets cut off and dragged away by security. Um, so, of course, we finally get the the final bit of that in the cemetery scene where it's like, oh, yes, the, the mother was, in fact, a jackal. Yes, that's exactly what, what happened. Like, like you hear someone says his mother was a jackal. You would think, oh, she must, you know, you either you don't like her or she's not a very good person. No, she's a literal jackal. <laughs> yeah. But I think that the the real emotional devastation in that scene of course is realizing that they actually murdered the child it wasn't just that they took advantage of a man in his grief it was that they murdered a newborn child the, the newborn child that his son would have been perfectly healthy he should have have had a living child and instead, they they bash this baby skull in. Yeah, they did that. There's evidence that they they murdered his newborn just seconds after it was born, and instead, you know, we're like, oh no, look at the miracle that has occurred, free baby, you know. And and that I think is what finally breaks breaks Robert. I know it seems like it's what happens to to Kathy in the next scene because he you know he calls Kathy and is like, okay, you you got to get out of London. You got to you know bad things are going on. I'll explain later. And then Mrs. Baylock, the the evil nanny, shows up and hurls her out the hospital window it's another one that i kind of had to laugh at because she lands right on into the ambulance perfectly on the gurney i mean yeah you can laugh if you want i i laughed more at the bad application of fake blood because mm. it wasn't so much fake blood as they kind of just painted on red makeup um, instead of using like actual kind of, you know, State gel blood. blood or care syrup or something, you know, uh, like, I don't know why they, they did kind of like flat, you know, matte red lipstick or something <laughs> coming out of her mouth. I don't know what that was, uh, for her death scene. Like, you know, even I can mix up, you know, care syrup blood in my kitchen come on it's halloween uh, you can, that, that, like, that that's that's default at this point yeah like I, I i can and have done that many a times it's tasty too <laughs> um but but yeah this the, is the point where 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 robert says that damien has to die yeah he's he's already kind of bent on damien's destruction at this point and this is when they they skip off to the um the middle east to meet this this exorcist well the the armageddon expert i'm i'm not sure they ever say he's specifically an exorcist but you know he's some kind of 
I don't know what he is, like an archaeologist or something. They just they find him in a cave in a archaeological dig somewhere in I guess Israel. I, I don't I don't exactly know where they're supposed to be. He says it's the birthplace of Christianity, so eh. I mean, um, I heard I heard the word Jerusalem, maybe. Yeah, I, I don't know. I've always been a, a little unsure on exactly where they're supposed to be, but um, I think that's I think that's where it is. Uh, but yeah, they go to see Leo McKern, uh, and he tells them about the birthmark, where to find it, and gives them. The daggers, seven daggers, and tells them that they have to take Damien to hallowed ground. It's got to be killed on holy ground. It's the exact opposite of a Highlander. Uh, But uh, he also says that you're going to have to to kill not just the body, but the spirit. And to do that, you have to stab him in a particular place pattern and uh, like yeah there's too much going on here to kill the antichrist i don't really know yeah there it's too much stuff come up come up with a faster way to kill the antichrist this was always doomed to fail (laughs) too complicated but they start to leave and immediately robert chickens out He's like, nope, can't do it. Throws the knives away. And uh, David Warner, like a boss, is like, well, if you won't do it, I will. And goes to... uh, And seals his own fate, yeah. Yeah, goes to pick up the knives, and apparently Satan is like, nope, that was too baller a move. Gotta get rid of this guy. (laughs) And orchestrates one of the... Like, just... By far the coolest death in this movie. And say what you want about the effects in the rest of this movie, this death holds up. The decapitation with the plane of glass, and yeah, it's a fake head, but it works fine. One of the movie props in movie history I wish I could own. If I, <laughs> if, 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 bring me the head of David Warner. I was gonna say. <laughs> If if somebody out there could bring me the head of David Warner, that's that's what I want. I don't know if it's then good in condition if it still exists. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly what it what it was made out of at the time or if it has been preserved, but if that thing is out there and has been preserved, I I want it. <laughs> like that that would be one of the coolest things to own. It's probably one of those things that Guillermo del Toro owns in that weird-ass house he owns, you know? <laughs> uh, if it exists, that's probably where it is. Yeah. But, uh... the Yeah, so that's... I, I, I want it. But it, it's so cool. It just And and just watching it, it back for this rewatch, I was like, man, that effect holds up. Because it was all practical. Yeah. I mean, it, they just, you know, they made a fake mannequin of David Warner, and then they shoved a plane of glass through it. I mean, you can't get any any more real than than that, other than doing it to an actual person. And please don't ever do that. But um, 
you know, that was a 100% practical effect, so it still looks amazing uh, to this day. It just, it's so cool. And immediately Robert is like, yeah, okay, I, I, I do believe in spooks. I do, I do, I do believe in spooks. Where are the <laughs> knives? Give me the knives. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta go find Damien. And, I mean, that's what he does. I mean, the next thing we see uh, after he's, you know, on the plane clutching his little, you know, package of daggers is uh, he's back at his house and he's tricking the hellhound down into the basement, which I got to admit, it's a pretty cool move. You know, gets the scissors. He starts cutting Damien's hair and he sees the mark, the mark of the three sixes. To and, prove that he is the son of Satan. Yeah, I mean, it's right there all along, you know. I mean, maybe there's a lesson in that, which is that occasionally you should just shave your kid's head. <laughs> Check for signs of Satan. Uh, um, <laughs> guess what, kids? This is the time of year we all shave our heads and look for signs of Satan. Like, do it during the summer. It's hot, you know. As he's doing that, of course, uh, Satanic Nanny has to come out and jump on his back and try to save the kid. My baby, my baby. Of course, he's got to stab her with a meat fork. Which, you know, this, this this gets to the cops now. So now he's wanted for the murder of the nanny and supposedly now he's going to murder this child. Yeah, I mean, it, it also doesn't help that he's just, you know, t- taking off and t- driving crazily down the street. He does make it to the church uh, and gets Damien onto the altar and he's getting ready to plunge the first dagger in, but well, there's the cops, and they do what cops do. Shoot first, ask questions later. Yeah. And we we end our movie at the uh, funeral of both Kathy and Robert, but the president and first lady are there with Damien in tow. I mean, they don't show the president's face, but considering the year this movie came out, I assume it was supposed to be Carter. Well, they they do mock the president earlier with a southern accent, so, I mean, yeah. Yeah, and the president's there. He's got Damien holding Damien's hand, and a little bit of a fourth wall break as Damien looks to the camera and smiles. And we get the loud Latin uh, chanting starting again. That's that that song, and we get a little little Bible verse on screen to close out the movie. Here is wisdom, let him let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six six six. So yeah. That is The Omen, the OG. It's definitely a movie that could not be made now as it was then because, not because you couldn't, because of the religious connotations, but simply because the scenario would not work 
in modern day. Like you said, they had to jump through a lot of hoops to make that 2006 movie work with the same story. Well, the interesting thing is, is that you kind of can make that work today because, like I said, they just did. They did it with Good Omens. Yes, it's a parody, but they hit a lot of the same story beats. And while there is comedy in the way they did it, most of the setup story beats are the same. And they had to do it in relatively the modern day. They they had to do it in the early-ish 2000s hmm. uh, because of when the story is set. Or maybe it was like 2010 or 2009 or something uh, because of the age of the kid. But a lot of that about switching the kid and fire in the hospital and a lot of that stuff was kind of done similarly. Mm. And it was done in the modern day and you do kind of buy it. <laughs> um, it just kind of involved a little more shenanigans by supernatural powers. Um, a little more direct intervention by the force, the forces of darkness, I guess, you know, and their, their actors. And of course, so the, go ahead. you could, my, my point being that you could change the story ever so mildly. And with a few more, well, Satan acted directly on the situation or had humans working for Satan. If the priests had done X, Y, and Z, then this plot works. You know, that that kind of thing. So it takes it takes a little bit smarter writing, but I, I think that the plot can still work in a modern day. You just have to think about it a little harder to explain away some things that modern audiences would ask questions about. And of course, this whole thing began an entire franchise. We get Omen 2 in 78, Final Conflict in 81, a television movie, Omen the Awakening in 91, the remake in 06, and... A Damien television series in 2016, which I yeah. did not know existed. <laughs> yeah, ew, isn't that great? <laughs> like I said, I I keep up with stuff. It it, it was meh. Meh. Um, uh, if you're interested in 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 the franchise, uh, the four movies are on HBO Max right now. For now, but yeah. we. As well Everything as the, on HBO Max is for now. As, as well of as the, this five minutes, it's currently <laughs> on HBO Max. As well as the 2006 remake. So if you're if you're interested in, in seeing the Omen saga, uh, it's there for now. <laughs> yeah, that's how I watched it. I don't know how you watched it. Um. Yeah. No, I had a copy. So. <laughs> um. The. Uh. Yeah. 
Um, even though it's on loan to HBO Max, it is owned by Fox. It is owned by Disney. We're not it's breaking weird. any rules. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it is a 20th century Fox movie. Disney now owns The Omen. Yeah. <laughs> Enter your own joke here. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, every, every time the Mickey ears show up, it's just weird Latin <laughs> chanting. Yeah. Uh, the, um, I just want to point out that even though that, that, uh, Latin, uh, chanting is now a trope of horror films. I mean, this is the movie that gave us that trope, <laughs> and the composer that gave us that trope is the legendary Jerry Goldsmith. This film and this score got him the only Oscar he won in his entire career. A career that I will remind you was filled with uh like Mulan the the animated Mulan mm. the original Planet of the Apes Logan's Run Alien The Mummy the good one the the Brendan Fraser one uh, Patton, that amazing score to Patton. If you've if you've ever been to the Disney parks and been on the Soren attraction, he wrote the music for that, which is incredible. Um, he also uh composed scores for five different Star Trek films. I, I mean. Come on, but but this this score was was what got him the Oscar, and I mean I I don't quibble with the fact that he should have won the Oscar for it, but um, I mean that started the trope of that like you know horror films have that you know Latin chanting. <laughs> uh, Jerry Goldsmith, what a legend! Yeah. So let's ask the question, Kiki, does the omen have the magic? I mean, I I love this film. Um weird triggering theology uh and weirdness of my childhood aside, this is a really well put together film. Just, you know, as a film, great film. I'm going to say it does. It might have the dark magic. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, uh, it's definitely black magic, I guess. But but uh, it's it's a movie that still holds up. It's a bit slow. Like if you're more used to more modern horror films, it's going to be a bit on the slow side. Like we said, it really doesn't pick up until after the first hour. Well, this is not a gore fest. So if you're coming for like a lot of blood or whatever, you're not going to find a lot of that. This is definitely like a psychological thriller kind of horror movie. Mm. I mean, they get more gory as the, as the saga goes on in the other sequels. Yeah. But this is definitely, definitely, definitely worth it, in my opinion. 
I still think, you know, all the performances are good. This is one of the, I mean, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of movies with child actors, but this is one of those where the child actor was cast correctly and used correctly. So I even like that. (laughs) But yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it still holds up. It's still one of the best horror films probably ever made. It's still, it's still good. It still holds up. So I would, uh, I would definitely recommend it. Um, Again, we're in the we're in the spooky season. If you're if you're in the mood for some old school seventies horror, <laughs> yeah. And yeah. if if you're wanting something that deals with the kind of like supernatural theological horror kind of you know genre, this is possibly the the best one ever made. So our next episode will actually hopefully release on Halloween itself. And we are, and of course it's going to be star. It's a classic movie starring Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis. I am of course talking about earth girls are easy. No, I'm talking about the 1986 remake of the fly. Actually, now that you brought it up, I'd rather just do earth girls. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, so yeah, the fly. This why we're doing the remake and not the original because it's the version that we grew up with. Well, it's also the version with Jeff Goldblum in it. How many Jeff Goldblum movies are we gonna do this year? I I, I don't know. I could stand to do a few more. <laughs> how many did he do for Fox? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. How many, how 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 many how many uh weird naked Jeff Goldblum movies can we fit in this year? <laughs> I mean, Earth Girls are easy. <laughs> I, I, I'm down to do Earth Girls are easy. I will watch that movie at the drop of a hat. Now you're making me think that it's a, is that even a, a Fox film? I doubt it. So come back next week for. The Fly, the 1986 version. And we will talk to you all next time. Bye. Bye. (laughs) What's wrong with us? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, but I like it. If you want to help the fight for human rights in the U.S., the American Civil Liberties Union works to protect constitutional rights for all Americans. Their website is aclu.org. If you need reproductive services in the U.S. or wish to donate to those who do, go to abortionfunds.org for more info. The battle isn't over until the last person surrenders. The fight continues. Don't let the magic stop here. Join our conversation online on Facebook at Rewatching the Magic. Twitter at Rewatch the Magic. And of course new episodes every week at rewatchingthemagic.podbean.com Remember, the magic is for everyone. It only stops if you let it.